Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Gooley Lamb. I forgot we were doing the voices. Let's see. I am. I, what's my name? Also, I'm Corrosive Joseph McCormick. Exactly. And we're here with our uh, our excellent audio producer, Death Nicholas Johnson. It is Halloween. It is Halloween itself, uh, I believe. Yeah. And so we are presenting Anthology of Horror, Volume 3. Uh, so this will be a sequel to our two previous Anthology of Horror episodes where we look at old episodes of horror anthology TV shows and figure out how they might often be deeper than they seem. Yeah, I mean, and also sometimes they're not very deep, but we, we have a knack for finding some hidden depth mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, horror and science fiction. Now, in the last episode, which should have been just a couple of days ago, we talked about an episode of The Twilight Zone concerning mm-hmm. how you can know whether or not you are in a dream or whether you are someone else's dream. And we talked about an episode of the uh, old horror anthology Monsters that featured uh, a story about ghouls called Down Below and related that to cities dealing with rat problems. Uh, So today, I think we were going to start by looking at an episode of The Outer Limits, right? Yes, The Sixth Finger. Uh, This is the fifth episode of the first season of ABC's sci-fi anthology series, legendary sci-fi anthology series, The Outer Limits, which originally ran from 1963 through 1965. It was created by Leslie Stevens, and unlike a lot of these shows, it didn't have a a true horror or sci-fi host. It didn't have like a a puppet or an actor that spoke to you and introduced everything, but it did have the control voice, which uh, in and of itself is pretty classic. Explain the control voice. Oh, we will control the vertical, we will control the horizontal. You know, it's like this this disembodied voice that is taking over your television Mm -hmm. set and presenting you with some sort of uh, cosmic transmission from the outer limits. Uh, I see. Is this the one that's there's no need to adjust your television Exactly. Set? Oh, yes. okay. I think I, for some reason, confused that. I thought that was like an alternate opening to the Twilight Zone. Mm. Uh, no, no, no. That Twilight Zone's always like Rod Serling being like, you are entering another dimension. Yeah, da, 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 da. yeah et cetera. Um, yeah, so The Outer Limits was definitely more in the, the in the science fiction domain. It was in many ways kind of like the, 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 the sci-fi side of the coin to the Twilight Zone's horror. Uh, but it also got a little spooky, a little scary at times, uh, and, and certainly falls under the domain of our, our mission statement here. Now, wait a second. Sorry, I just realized that the Outer Limits introduction you're doing here, that this might be the first sort of hint or attempt at doing a, a kind of found footage thing, right? It's saying, like, you are receiving a transmission. It's, like, implying that you're part of the narrative because your TV set is is be, something's being beamed from another place to it. Yeah, to a limited extent. I mean, once the episode starts, it's pretty clear you're still safely in television land. <laughs> uh, but you're also in a, in a place that still feels a little less safe. But this ain't I Love Lucy. Exactly. So uh, the, the Outer Limits went two seasons and produced – 49 episodes. Again, it's just always amazing just how robust these uh, some of these older seasons on uh, television were. Uh, not all of the episodes are classics, but some stand out uh, amid the all-time greatest achievements in science fiction television, even today in this sort of golden age of, uh, of television and television options. Uh, some of the most famous episodes include, uh, uh, for instance, Demon with a Glass Hand, which was scripted by Harlan Ellison. Mm-hmm. But uh, The Sixth Finger is also rather iconic. Like a lot of the episodes, it features... 
some alien makeup uh, effects that, that are pretty astounding. A lot of the alien designs on the Outer Limits uh, kind of you know leaned into old school ideas of what a, a, an extraterrestrial might look like. You know, there are a lot of oversized heads and mm-hmm. uh, long ears and whatnot. Like the brain mutant from The Silent Earth. Yeah, yeah. So some of them are a little bit dated, but but they were still pulled off exceptionally well. Uh, shot in black and white, uh, and 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 uh, you know sometimes with an almost avant-garde kind of style. Uh, that being said, there are some effects that they pulled off on that show that stand up, I think, really well today. Um, the Galaxy Being, I think, is an exception where you had like this kind of sharp contrast of black and white uh, where it seems to be just radiating on the screen. But uh, The Sixth Finger was directed by James Goldstone, who also directed the pilot for a little show called Star Trek. Oh, okay. So that's before Kirk is the captain, right? Right, yeah. And it was written by um, Ellis St. Joseph, who did a lot of TV work in his career. And it also starred British-American actor David McCallum, who starred opposite Robert Vaughn in The Man from Uncle. <laughs> so McCallum stars in this episode as the character Griffiths, a Welsh miner who agrees to let a rogue scientist named Professor uh, Mathers experiment on him, which is, of course, always a solid life choice. Right. Uh, Mathers played a role, we're told, in the development of atomic weaponry, and he wants to aid humanity instead. And so he has inventive means of speeding up evolutionary development, and he wants to try it out on a human being. Now, I can say in the early 1960s, this would actually be not that far-fetched of a scenario. I mean, I think there were a number of scientists who were known at the time to have worked on the creation of atomic weaponry who were deeply yeah. publicly regretful of their work even. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, t- typified for the most part by the uh, the, the heavily quoted uh, bit from uh, from Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. uh, Now I Am Become Death, where he himself is, of course, to, uh, quoting uh, uh, Vedic scriptures. Yeah. Because certainly the atomic bomb is this, uh, you know, continues to to loom over us as this uh, this symbol of, um, of 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 great human achievements that are put to work in in the name of like our worst impulses as as a species as a civilization. Totally. And uh, and, and yeah, so the idea of someone involved with that wanting to do something that that uh, you know that, that that saves us, that changes us, that does you know that puts us in a different direction. I think that that makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of people would would agree that you know this this period of of, of nuclear power, you know, is is something we hope it's it's kind of a bottleneck, right? It's like it's a period of extreme danger uh, to the species that we hope to move past, we hope to evolve through. And and certainly, you know, we tend to think of that evolution as more, you know, bi- less biological and more cultural, more uh, political. Uh, but in a science fiction story, you know, it makes sense to go with the more literal interpretation of that. Like human beings need to evolve beyond this point of extreme danger. So I'm going to put a human being inside of a crazy sci-fi contraption and see what kind of, uh, you know, peaceful being comes out the other side. Right. As you increase our ability to destroy ourselves and one another, it seems like every year that goes by, we're just sort of like barely eking, you know, we're Mm -hmm. just making it if we don't use that power unless you change us somehow that it would be inconceivable to us to use it. Right. Now, to be clear, evolution, as we've discussed plenty of times on the show, is a process of mutation and natural selection that takes place across vast periods of time due to various environmental stressors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you agree with that? You're more Darwin's bulldog (laughs) on this show than I am. Uh, I I mean, our modern picture of evolution, I think, has become a little bit more nuanced in that we – 
learn more and more things that uh, that affect it, like epigenetic factors mm-hmm. possibly and things like that. But uh, yeah, basically, I mean, the standard model is that there is variation and then there is selection by the environment. And yeah, the big thing, of course, the, the, the way this happens in nature is it happens over many generations. The way evolution is often conceived of in stories like this is it basically just means like changing somebody, like changing an individual's body in their lifetime, which would be different from biological evolution. That would be more like, I, I don't know, bioengineering of the right. body. Yeah. And and also, I mean, the other thing, too, is this this model in this science fiction story, uh, it has this, it, it kind of implies that there's an exact map of our evolution inside of our bodies, inside of our genes, mm-hmm. you know, as if, like, like we're a, a Pokemon and you can look at a chart saying, like, how it advances to its final form, if I have my Pokemon references correct. <laughs> I don't right. know my Pokemon all that well. Yeah. But, uh, but still, yeah, it implies that there's, like, a certain path that an organism should take and it's all written in the genes uh, as opposed to being this process, uh, you know, being, you know, driven by this process of natural selection that depends so heavily upon environment. Yeah. So on one hand, it's a tad silly to think that some manner of mad science process could simply speed up human evolution. But again, they're trying to make a statement here, so we'll roll with it. Okay. So as Griffith evolves, and they're, they're, this, is a, this is a real talkie, by the way, as far as uh, um, you know, anthology shows go. And Outer Limits tended to, to be, I think, a little more cerebral than, uh, than many of the other uh, in, uh, anthology and, uh, you know, shows that would come in its wake. There's a lot of discussing what this means and discussing uh, you know, how we might apply it to our understanding of the world. And so Griffith, you know, he goes through these pro- – like a, a – I guess a treatment of evolution. Then he comes back out and he's changed and he talks about it. He goes back in, he gets another treatment. He comes back, he's even different. Uh, But basically, these are the, the changes, biological and mental, that take place. Okay, first of all, he gets an extremely overdeveloped cortex, like a, a giant alien melon head, uh, which, again, is very impressive uh, uh, makeup effects. But at the same time, it's kind of a dated look for our idea of like a far future being. Okay, so just to clarify, basically is the idea that this is naturally how humans would evolve if we were allowed to just, you know, keep living for thousands of years. But the scientist has figured out a way to get us there down the, the already mapped path ahead of time. Right. I, I, th- I think that's what the, the model is here. We just have to sort of, uh, you know, take their word for it on the, the sci-fi process that's okay. getting it to us. Sure. Uh, the, so huge head. Great. Right. Now, as the title uh, implies, uh, one of the other major changes is that there is a sixth finger on each hand. Hmm. So a total of, um, of 12 uh, digits on the hands now. Better to press nuclear launch buttons with. Yeah. Uh, in addition, long elf ears, which, you know, isn't – I don't really have a good um, discussion lined up for that. But <laughs> there are elf ears. Uh-huh. Mental powers such as telekinesis. Hmm. Vastly enhanced intelligence and ultimately enhanced empathy and understanding. And in the original script, he also eventually develops a means of um, photosynthesis and uh, and lives on pure light and kind of transcends into a being of light. Hmm. In the show, however, he attempts to push himself even further in evolution. But his wife betrays him out of love and turns him back into his original self, you know, turns back the dial on the evolution machine uh, to try and get the, the, you know, the man that she loves uh, mm. back in the room. But the process ends up killing him. It's just too much for him. Oh, no. So it all makes for a great mad science tale and, and one that I think works well thematically. Uh, plus, McCallum has that kind of like old school Leslie Howard delivery, you know, uh-huh. uh, which, uh, which I really love because if you 
watching a show like The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone, you do have to you find a reason to love some of the more, you know, by today's standards, antiquated uh, aspects of, say, acting or mm-hmm. pacing um, or even the effects. And Joe, I have a, a picture of of uh, the the being here for you. And certainly anybody who wants to see this, just look up The Outer Limits, The Sixth Finger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also find it on like Hulu or Netflix, streaming pretty much everywhere. But you can also find lots of images of this. It's a very iconic uh, costume. Okay. So first of all, I see the giant melon head and that, lo- that looks great because you can fit so much brain in there. <laughs> I'm immediately imagining some problems having to do with birth. Mm. Uh, like the size of the human birth canal, which you would have to assume it would uh, it also evolve to be much bigger to allow a birth of that kind of creature. Though I believe it's it's widely thought that we're already pretty much at sort of the limits of what our bodies will allow in terms of cranial size. Right. I mean, then the other thing that comes to mind is our, our discussions in our episode on brain soup and liquefied brains. Mm. Uh, the, the actual size of the brain would not be as important as the number of neurons within it. Right. So I think by our, our modern understanding, uh, it was kind of – it was very much in vogue at the time mm-hmm. to, to see like, you know, outsized craniums as being a sign of super intelligence in your fictional creatures. But I think nowadays we realize that that would not be necessary. Yeah. But I mean, I, like I already mentioned, this island Earth, it shows up in a lot of yeah. sci-fi from the mid-century that you've got aliens with huge old heads, I guess because they're very smart. But also I like how he's got extremely defined – facial bone structure like this guy has cheekbones to die for <laughs> he does yes and then of course there are the elf ears uh, uh-huh. which, which again we don't really have anything to say about them i'm not sure what pointy ears would really accomplish uh, evolutionarily oh man this seems like something that has to have been explored in a kind of speculative paper like somebody who's an expert on the morphology of the ears and how <laughs> they help you hear how would you hear differently if you had elf ears I don't know. We should come. Uh, I bet we should come back to that because if there, if there is a good answer for it, uh-huh. uh, you know, there's a whole world of, of elven ear structure that we could uh, discuss in the future. But what I want to talk about is that extra finger. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will get into the uh, the, the five digit rule in vertebrate evolution, and we'll discuss the possibility of a sixth finger coming into play. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about the classic Outer Limits episode, The Sixth Finger, about a man who speeds up his own evolution within his own lifetime, and he gets a gigantic melon head. He gets really defined facial bones, uh, beautiful cheekbones. He gets elf ears, but he also grows a sixth finger. And so, Robert, you, you looked into what it would mean to grow a sixth finger. Is that kind of thing possible? Why or why would not we? Why wouldn't we see that in uh, human evolution or primate evolution? Yeah, it's really it's really fascinating because first of all, the five digit rule does run pretty deep in vertebrate evolution. Uh, according to Michael Coates, associate professor in the uh, Department of Organismal Biology and Anatomy at the University of Chicago and co-editor of Evolution and Development, writing for Scientific American, the condition of having no more than five fingers and toes probably goes back before the evolutionary divergence of amphibians and amniots, birds, mammals, reptiles. Mm-hmm. We're talking 340 million years ago. Go back 360 million years ago and there's evidence of tetrapods with six, seven, eight digits. Uh, the the uh, decrease to five or fewer uh, came about alongside the development of sophisticated wrist and ankle joints. Hmm. So basically the, the creatures with more digits had simpler skeletons and simpler limb mobility. 
And they were generally, you know, something along the line of flippers because we're talking about creatures of the water here. But as these limbs evolve to allow certain organisms to stand um, or to push off with those limbs, uh, essentially, you know, as they move towards being land creatures, Mm -hmm. uh, we see the reduction of digits. And indeed, we tend to see, uh, you know, the further reduction of digits because the the rule of evolutionary thumb here is that it's easier to lose something than it is to gain something. Absolutely. I mean, you can see that with many uh, tetrapod mammals today, for example. Look at a dog's paw. I mean, they have a sort of vestigial other thumb type thing up there on the the leg, Mm -hmm. but basically they got four toes that go go down on the ground. It's the, what, the dewclaw? Yeah, 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 up there. Or, I mean, even uh, look at the, the, the feet of ungulates. Yeah, I mean, um, horses are a great place to look because uh, we see how far it's reduced now. But, um, you know, various prehistoric horses had three or four toes. And when animals actually do gain digits, well, uh, Coates points out that the lack of true six-toed or six-fingered creatures in today's fauna, quote, highlights some sort of constraint. Uh, for instance... One of the rare cases we see of, uh, you know, of a creature gaining digits is the marine reptile uh, Ichthyosaurus. This is the uh, – these lived 65 million years ago. We've talked about them on the show before. They essentially are dolphin-like creatures. They have that same sort of shape, mm-hmm. uh, but they, they are reptiles. Um, and as a result of returning to the sea, they eventually developed paddles that sometimes had, you know, quite a number of digits in there. Okay, so the ichthyosaurs, like the marine mammals of today, in their evolutionary history, went to land and then went back to water. Right, yeah. So, uh, which again, lines up nicely with this idea of, of, yeah, as long as you're a sea creature, you can have multiple uh, digits within that paddle. Mm-hmm. But if, when you start using that paddle increasingly, again, over, you know, generation after generation after generation, if it's used to push off, if it's new, used even to hold up your weight, mm-hmm. it becomes increasingly um, more beneficial to have fewer digits in that uh, at the end of that limb. Mm. However, we do see creatures like the mole and the panda, both of which benefit from remodeled wrist bones that essentially serve as a sixth finger, but which are not true fingers. Hmm. And if you haven't seen a picture of this, uh, I, I encourage everyone to look up pictures of uh, a panda's paw or the, um, the, the, the claws of a mole. And uh, you will, you know, if you start doing some counting, you'll be like, okay, one, two, three, four, five, and oh, kind of six. Hmm. Again, not a true thumb, but uh, for the panda, for instance, it serves as a thumb. It has the, like the role of a thumb in helping them handle food. The panda, of course, is the uh, the herbivore of the bear world, and 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 it has to eat constantly, and therefore it has uh, eventually reached the point where it needs a little extra thumb-like appendage to get the job done. Uh, meanwhile, um, for moles, uh, this uh, extra little thumb-like appendage, it helps them tunnel through the earth. Oh, so being almost more like a flipper. Yeah, yeah help it swim through the earth, yeah. Uh, these are, in Coates' words, quote, rather baroque solutions to the apparently straightforward task of growing an extra finger. Hmm. So, uh, you know, if we're to think back to our Outer Limits example here, it would be far more likely that one would grow some sort of a you know, a, you know, a paddle of a, a pseudo finger as opposed to growing a full finger. Mm. No matter how many keyboards you're having to use, no matter you know how many uh, you know uh, you know mad science gadgets you're having to man- manipulate with your far future digits. But I want to talk about an, another, um, even more amazing example from real world biology. Okay. 
And for this, we have to turn to the world of the lemur. Uh, as recently reported in Smithsonian, the I.I. lemur, known for its weird looks and its elongated middle finger, which it uses uh, to fish grubs uh, out of trees. Mm-hmm. You may have seen this in various documentaries before. Mm-hmm. It looks like a tree goblin. Right. Uh, and and it's, I think it has un- unfortunately suffered from like superstitious uh, killings uh, in the past. But it has this – it's nocturnal and it has this fabulous, super elongated – in some people's eyes, they might think it's creepy. Middle finger, which it uses, you had to fish out a grub, and uh, and then it's uh, it's you know it's this highly specialized digit, and uh, and once it gets the grub out, I was reading that it'll also like pluck the top of the grub off and like suck the inside of the grub out, like it is just a highly evolved grub eater. Wow! But in addition to this, it also boasts an extra tiny thumb or pseudo thumb, complete with a fingerprint. Uh, this, according to Adam Harstone Rose, associate professor of biological sciences at North Carolina State University. It's a pseudo-thumb made of bone and cartilage, but it can be moved in three directions much like a human thumb. Now, you might wonder why. Why why is this creature so greedy for crazy digits? It already has this super elongated specialized digit. What does it need Mm -hmm. an an extra digit for? You know what I realized the eye-eye hand reminds me of? I just looked it up to see it again. It it reminds me of of Klaus Kinski's hands in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. He's got the long nails and the creepy fingers. Yeah, it does does seem like a true creature of the night, uh, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, basically, it seems to have uh, developed this this additional pseudo thumb uh, because the other fingers are elongated and specialized. Like essentially, it's lost that middle finger to specialized usage, hmm. and so it has had to develop a pseudo thumb to make up for that special specialization. And to be clear, you'll you'll sometimes find a sixth finger occurring on a human as a, as a birth defect. And in fact, since we're celebrating Halloween, it's worth noting that Hannibal Lecter in the books uh, uh, has an extra digit on his left hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that, that occurs, but it is not, you know, it's not a, a naturally, um, you know, evolved uh, feature. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're probably wondering, where does this leave uh, our six-fingered man in the outer limits? So Griffith kind of essentially dodges the question when at one point a scientist actually asks him about the sixth finger, like, what's, what's up with that extra finger? And he just kind of starts talking about something else. Uh, but, but it's implied, especially given the prior scene in which he plays a piano, that it enables the better manipulation of interface tools, uh, like the keys of a piano or the keys of a computer, etc., now, if again, this is suggesting this would be selected for an evolution, it, it, that would imply that at some point people are like dying or not reproducing as right. much because they can't type as fast. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where we get into some some problems with this this model if you look at it too closely. Um, I also had to realize as I was typing up notes for this, I was hyper conscious of how little I actually use my pinky fingers while typing. Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, I'm probably using some sort of weird hybrid of of actual typing with a little hunt and peck thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I I don't know that I use my pinkies all that much, if at all, unless I'm doing some sort of weird hotkey. I definitely use mine. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's that semicolon, you know, for the <laughs> semicolon sentences. No, I. I Wait, I've got to think about it. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I do it. Okay. All right. Yeah, to each is Sorry, own. I, I'm not bragging. I mean, <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I just because my pinky fingers are way better than yours. <laughs> well, you know, they're not. They're not holding me back. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, you know, when I I catch myself typing, I'm like, oh, I don't think the pinkies are really carrying their weight here. Hmm. 
So um, <laughs> it's kind of silly to imagine a scenario in which being able to type extra hard and be able to hit like crazier hot keys on a keyboard mm-hmm. would would have this kind of impact on human evolution. At the same time, maybe it's for the next level of PC gaming. Yeah, yeah that's it. But but on the other hand, it is true that habitual tool use has led to the evolved state of the modern human hand, including thumb length. So tool use has shaped our bodies. It has shaped our hand in the past. So it's not ridiculous to say that the, the you know future human evolution would continue to reshape the human hand. Sure. But there you would be contending with the fact that I think there's, you know, in the environments that we mostly live in today, not being able to use a tool as well doesn't usually mean that you're going to, you know, on average have fewer children than the people right. next door. That, that seems like a thing that would be more the case in like a hunter-gatherer su- survival scenario. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we have to remember that we're no longer subject to purely natural selection at this stage of, of, of the human experience. You know, it's, it's more of an unnatural selection. We also have to consider the potential of directed evolution, that we will in the future continue to figure out ways to manipulate our own genes. Yeah. Uh, which brings up the possibility that perhaps our far future selves have simply added on an extra finger. Mm-hmm. Like we, it's not a situation where we evolved one, but we realized, hey, having two pinkies on each hand would be nice. Let's do it. And then we just we just do it. We just check it off on the menu of gene manipulation, uh, which, which reminds me of uh, – Les Grossman's The Magicians and the sci-fi uh, TV series that's based on it. There's a there's a, a dark wizard in the show called the Beast, mm-hmm. and he has uh, an extra finger on each hand because in the uh, in, in the Magicians, casting spells involves a lot of like fine manipulation of your digits, like sort of like the the use of mudras and whatnot. Mm. Uh, so if you had an extra digit on each hand, you'd be able to cast improved variations of spells. You'd be able to cast spells that a normal individual individual with five digits would be incapable of. Well, that makes me wonder who invented those spells then. I mean, I guess they're of his own creation. <laughs> well, yes. And of course, there are a lot of inhuman entities in this world as well. Oh, so okay. He could be going to them for such spells. Uh, however, uh, you know, in discussing this idea of like, you know, growing extra fingers to manipulate technology, etc., as Peter Ward pointed out in his Scientific American article, The Future of Man, How Will Evolution Change Humans? We also have to consider, com- uh, you know, not only like computer interfaces like keyboards, but uh, more drastic interfaces, some of the sort of futuristic mind computer interfaces that we've discussed in the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he points to a quote from George Dyson in his 1998 book, Darwin Among the Machines. Quote, everything that human beings are doing to make it easier to operate computer networks is at the same time, but for different reasons, making it easier for computer networks to operate human beings. Darwinian evolution in one of those paradoxes with which life abounds may be a victim of its own success, unable to keep up with non-Darwinian processes that it has spawned. I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I would say, I mean, this is in the 1990s before you could anticipate a lot of the stuff that's going on now with, say, social media and the many ways that our our technology is influencing us. Uh, But yeah, just 
One thing I would say here is that uh, this person probably lived through the transition from command line computers to graphical user interfaces. Yeah. And so the, obviously having a graphical user interface makes it way easier for people who don't know much about how the computer works or understanding directories and commands and all that stuff to use it because it's intuitive. It's easy. You just look at the thing. You recognize it. You click on it, all that. But also those graphical user interfaces I think led to all of the ways that computers are now just completely completely attention monopolizing devices. Absolutely. So Ward basically concludes that we'll have to go one of three different ways as humans continue to evolve. Uh, there's There's the stasis direction where we mainly just stay the same, but with minor tweaks and also a kind of uh, merging of races. Mm -hmm. There's also uh, speciation in which we break off into different species, uh, you know, and hopefully none of them are are Morlocks because ultimately speciation is the the model that H.G. Wells uh, explores in The Time Machine. Uh, And then he also uh, talks about the Borg route, uh, which is symbiosis with machines. Uh, I find it kind of hard to believe that there could be human speciation unless you're talking about space colonization, mm-hmm. uh, like fully separating human populations from one another so that they cannot physically come together at all for, you know, hundreds of hundreds of years. Even if you sent some of them below ground to man all the machines and keep the, the surface world running? Well, I guess it would depend on whether you could go back and forth between, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think as long as humans stay in physical contact with each other, I find it hard to believe that there will be actual human species. But then, yeah, space colonization does seem like that's yeah, a possibility. That creates a kind of like a certain hard divide. It is yeah. it is the equivalent of having a species wind up on an island right. and, uh, and and co-evolve. So Ward doesn't specifically chime in on the six-finger thing. Uh, he doesn't reference that. But he does dismiss the idea of uh, giant-brained, uh, uh, futurized humans like we see in the sixth finger. Uh-huh. He says, quote, The big brain vision has no real scientific basis. The fossil record of skull sizes over the past several thousand generations shows that our days of rapid increase in brain size are long over. Yeah, in fact, we, we already peaked, right? We, we're Our average brain sizes in the modern world are smaller than they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, this episode of Outer Limits is not just about biological evolution. It's about the evolution of, of what it means to be human. Uh, you know, can, is there a potential for us to change in a more meaningful way? Can we become, for instance, more empathetic? Can we become more present as a species, kinder? Uh, this is the idea that the episode is playing with and hoping for. And, and ultimately, like, that's where it gets to at the end uh, with this he, – he, the character, while he's still more human, is uh, you know, possessed by this, this quest for vengeance against the people who run, operate the mine in which he works. Mm. And by the end of it, he has evolved beyond these feelings of vengeance. Like there's a period in the, in the episode where he wants to use his crazy uh, you know, future brain powers to go you know, wreak havoc on them. Uh, but by the end of it, he realizes, no, that is not the way. Uh, well, I would say I think it certainly is possible for us to become more empathetic, um, uh, you know, less vengeful and violent and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think you necessarily need biological changes for that to happen. I mean, I think we've seen massive changes in the levels of like violence and vengefulness you see in the average person across different societies through time. And the main changes are through like culture, like like social norms, uh, how children are educated, what's acceptable socially within your friend groups and and the culture. Right. So changes in the software as opposed to the hardware. Yeah. But then, of course, we have to we have to consider like the rate at which software can change and the rate at which it may evolve. Uh, You know, how 
no matter how pleasant uh, a human civilization's current software may be, how much has to happen to it to make it well to 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 use a naughty word on this show devolve into some lesser state? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's the danger. I mean, yeah, cultural changes can can be undone maybe as quickly as they can be done or even quicker. Uh, by the way, uh, I was reading about the original script uh, and the production of this episode of The Outer Limits. And according to The Outer Limits Companion by David J. Sko, uh, Dorothy Brown, the ABC censor at the time, had objected to the Darwinism and promotion of evolution inherent in the sixth finger. Whoa. So, uh, one, in fact, one of the early deletions from the script was a speech on the topic of evolution. Well, that's funny. I mean, again, like to really explore the – What's happening to the character in the episode is not actually Darwinian right. evolution, but uh, but that's funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does rely on the idea that there's like a roadmap for our species generally, mm-hmm. uh, which also is not part of Dar- Darwinian evolution. Right. Yeah. The, so it's not they're not really hitting the the viewer over the head with you know a hardcore uh, you know, speech on evolution, but I think just the mere fact that they were citing evolution and speaking mm-hmm. speaking of evolution um, and the works of Darwin as being uh, you know something that we can actually you know, hang our, our scientific hat on, uh, they were afraid it was going to offend people. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up surrounded by that kind of uh, opposition and, and sensitivity to ideas about evolution. But I I don't know, despite that, I, I'm kind of surprised that it made uh, ABC censorship priorities. Yeah, especially in a show like this, which, you know, ultimately is, you know, kind of high-minded and stuffy. Well, I guess also trading in science fiction, which would have had a you know a certain amount of appeal to younger audiences as well. Yeah. But uh, still, uh, I have to say this is a pretty solid episode of The Outer Limits. I think it stands up really well today. Uh, you, you have to go into it knowing you're not going to get an action-packed um, uh, you know, episode here. This is this is a very talky episode, uh-huh. uh, but it's it's really solid. Well shot, well acted, um, worth checking out. I think a lot of the best anthology sci-fi and horror episodes are not actually action-packed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they often tend to be rather subdued, just dealing with a strange idea as discussed by a handful of characters. Yeah, and uh, you know sometimes you do see this kind of unevenness to. The perceived budget of a show, like you know mm-hmm. that some of those anthology episodes, maybe they had a had a few more bucks to spend on the cast, on the locations, and some are essentially kind of bottle episodes where there's just like one set, or it's it's almost kind of a stage piece. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, when it, when it's really well done, uh, you know, that'll certainly get you there. To serve man isn't action packed either, is it? Yeah, no, it's <laughs> just, uh, and that's one that we talked about last year, right? Speaking of, Joe, uh, what is your selection, your final selection for this year's uh, anthology of horror episodes? Well, I wanted to talk about my favorite all-time Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode, (laughs) Citizen Kang. Ah. This is from Simpsons Treehouse of Horror 7. It originally aired October 27th, 1996. And I think this is is not only one of my favorite – Simpsons bits ever. I think it is some of the best political satire in American media history. Yeah, this this is just a great treehouse episode. Period. Uh, I rewatched it the other night with the family, 
And uh, I, I must have seen it a dozen times in the in the past because in addition to Citizen Kang, it also contains the Genesis Tub. This is where Lisa's tooth grows a civil, a civilization uh, uh, after yeah. uh, it gets a little static shock from Bart, which is very similar to a tale by George R. R. Martin that was adapted uh, by the, the 1990s revival of The Outer Limits, mm. uh, more or less along the same time. And then this episode also has The Thing and I, <laughs> which is a, a, a great, more of sort of a, a straight-up horror piece, which contains a twist ending that I have to say is nearly identical to the twist ending of a certain top 2019 horror film. Oh, okay. Well, let's not say any more no, than that. But I think you know the one, right? Yeah, I know exactly okay. what you're talking about, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody else. All right, we need to take a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. Okay, so this Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, again, it aired at the end of October 1996. And at the time it actually aired, the United States was right in the final days of a presidential election that was pitting incumbent Democratic President Bill Clinton against Republican Senator Bob Dole from Kansas. And in this Treehouse of Horror segment, Alien invaders Kang and Kodos, uh, who are from a certain ringed planet who they prefer not to mention, um, they plot to take over the world by body snatching both Clinton and Dole and taking their places in the election as lookalikes. And the idea is stated pretty directly by Kang in the guise of Bob Dole. A reporter asks the Kang Dole, uh, Senator Dole, why should people vote for you instead of President Clinton? And Kang Dole responds, it makes no difference which one of us you vote for. Either way, your planet is doomed. Doomed. (laughs) Replacing both. That's a good idea, right? Yeah, then there's no risk, right? Either right. way, they're going to win. Yeah. So in this uh, in this little plot, Homer becomes aware of the alien takeover plot because he happened to be on the alien ship when Clinton and Dole were replicated. So he decides he's got to reveal Kang and Kodos for what they are. So he runs on stage at an event, I think at the Capitol building, where both candidates are speaking, and he rips off their disguises, revealing them both as hideous space reptiles. <laughs> but Kang and Kodos seem unfazed to declare it's true, we are aliens, but what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. <laughs> and then somebody in the crowd suggests voting for a third-party candidate. And Kodo says, go ahead, throw your vote away. <laughs> So the Americans, of course, end up electing Kang, who uh, immediately enslaves all humans, and he puts them to work constructing a giant laser to aim at some third uh, unspecified planet. And then Marge laments the state of uh, affairs that they're they're suffering under right now, and Homer smugly declares, don't blame me. I voted for Kodo. Uh, uh, I, I think this this might be the best nine minutes of political science, uh, satire in American pop culture history. Uh, and I don't want to be misunderstood there based on some of the themes in the episode because, of course, a major theme here is the pointlessness and futility of some parts of the democratic process. I don't want to be mistaken for saying I, I think it makes no difference who you vote for for president or that all politicians are the same. You know, I think that's the kind of thing that it's like easy to say and feel superior about saying when you don't want to put in the work to learn what's going on and what's at stake. 
Right. It was the kind of statement uh, I would have found very attractive when I was like a first-year college student, kind of intellectually lazy but wanting to stake a moral claim. Yeah, or wanting to, to differentiate yourself from uh, you know, the politics that you might have been born into. Yeah. It's easier to, instead of saying, actually, I disagree with you completely and I go to this side, you can mm-hmm. just say, oh, I think I don't – sorry, I don't go for any of it. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, I can remember being like that. I wanted to have a strong opinion without having to do the work to earn an opinion. Right. Uh, so I don't think that way anymore. But at the same time, while I don't generally feel, feel that's always true about elections, I think there is some real cutting wisdom in that satire because even though it's not the case that all politicians are the same and elections don't matter, people often overestimate how much their democratic choice will make a difference to particular issues they really care about. Uh, I mean, there are so many big problems that you thought electing the right person might solve, and then that person was elected and the problem stayed the same or got worse. But even more than that, I think this episode is brilliant at highlighting the absurd and nonsensical conclusions often reached by group choice algorithms that we follow in our politics. And that's sort of what I wanted to look at here uh, in relation to this episode. In that vein, I want to explore the question of whether or not the election of Kang is an example of the Abilene paradox. Hmm. Robert, had you ever come across this concept before? I don't believe I had, no. Yeah, I I, I think this is very useful to have in your toolkit of, of concepts to apply to the world because it's absolutely Absolutely something that explains many unfortunate group behaviors in politics, in business, even in like family vacations and and hangouts with your friends. Uh, So this paradox was explained in a 1974 paper by the George Washington University scholar Jerry B. Harvey, which was published in the journal Organizational Dynamics. And I'm going to give a kind of updated uh, scenario here for you to consider. So imagine the following scenario. You are hanging out with your friends PJ, Nancy, and Jamie Lee. It's October. You're all uh, just finished babysitting. You're at Nancy's house carving a pumpkin, and you're watching an old Howard Hawks movie on TV, The Thing from Another World. You're hanging out. You're having an okay time. But then suddenly Nancy says, hey, does anybody want to go out and see a movie? And PJ says, yeah, that could be cool. Let's see what's playing. So you look up showtimes at the local theater, and the only show left tonight is a midnight showing of The Purge 17 as the world purges. (laughs) Uh, So PJ says, yeah, we could see that if you guys want. And Nancy says, yeah, okay, I could be down to go to The Purge. And Jamie Lee says, sure, if you two want to see it, I'm in. So since all of your friends agreed, you resign yourself. You say, okay, let's see it. Tickets are $14 a piece. Uh, the movie stars Fred Durst and Tim Allen. It's three and a half hours long. At multiple moments, you consider leaving the theater, but you don't want to go out alone and leave your friends behind. So you sit through this whole terrible movie, and when the credits finally roll, you leave the theater with a throbbing headache, and you immediately ask, why did we do that to ourselves? And Jamie Lee says, I don't know. It sounded pretty bad to me, but I thought the rest of you wanted to see it. And Nancy says, well, I didn't want to see it. I just thought the rest of you did. And PJ says, well, don't look at me. I just said I was okay with it if you guys wanted to go. Weren't you the one who suggested it? And Nancy, the one who did suggest going to a movie, finally says, well, I just thought you guys might be bored hanging out at the house. So it turns out that none of the four of you actually wanted to see this movie, and yet somehow you collectively decided it would be the best thing to do with your time together. Everybody agreed on a course of action that nobody individually wanted. Robert, can I assume this experience is somewhat familiar to you? 
Hmm. Yeah, maybe from uh, I, I think probably the, the best example I can think of is, is like when as a family, when I was a kid, sometimes we would agree on what to watch. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's something that, that one of us had a definite stake in. But other times it, it kind of felt like this, where we ended up agreeing to watch a movie just because it was a it was a major film that came out. And we're like, OK, I guess we're watching. Oh, I have. Uh, God, I can't even think of a good example. But just some, you know, whatever the big mainstream uh, family film was that had yeah. hit theaters and was now on VHS. Christmas with the cranks. <laughs> well, maybe not that bad, but but stuff stuff like that. Yes, uh-huh. uh, yeah. So this would be a prime example of what Harvey calls the Abilene paradox, and the name Abilene paradox comes from uh, the story Jerry Harvey tells to open his paper. It's similar to the story I told, but it's about a family in Texas making a long drive to Abilene in a non-air conditioned car in hot weather. It's a completely miserable experience, as you would expect, and it turns out nobody actually wanted to go to Abilene in the first place, every member of the family just thought the other family members wanted to go and then failed to communicate their actual preferences. And as Harvey puts it in his article, the Abilene paradox is the fact that, quote, organizations frequently take actions in contradiction to what they really want to do and therefore defeat the very purposes they're trying to achieve. And and he characterizes the Abilene paradox as not a failure to manage disagreement, but a failure to manage agreement. Hmm. Uh, So when I first read about this at some point in the past couple of years, I was like, oh, my God, this kind of thing. I recognize so much of this in the world. How have I gone this long without a name for it? Uh, It seems to me to be a problem for group choice at all kinds of levels. Again, you mentioned, you know, a family trying to decide what movie to see, uh, but, you know, group group of friends trying to decide what to do, how to spend their Sunday, or a democratic society trying to elect their leaders. Many kinds of group choice problems, I think, arise, of course, from the inability to manage conflict. But this is the opposite. Harvey argues that even more group choice problems arise from the inability to manage agreement. And another uh, real-world example that Harvey gives in his paper is the Watergate scandal. He, he quotes a number of uh, people involved in Nixon's cam- uh, the Nixon campaign's Dirty Tricks team who all claimed privately that they, they had doubts not only about the morality about, but about the practical wisdom of their scheme that to each of them privately it seemed like the payoffs were not really worth the risks, but they each assumed they were the only ones with such doubts and thus acted along with the rest of the group in a way that hurt all of them, even though they privately most or all thought it was a bad idea. So it's like Nixon wants to purge. Lily wants to purge. So uh, I guess, I I mean, I don't really want to purge, but if everybody's in the mood to purge, I guess I'm in. (laughs) Right. And uh, in a lot of his paper, Harvey just analyzes what he sees are like the, he, he thinks the common organizational symptoms of uh, the Abilene Paradox. For example, he talks about the idea of action anxiety. He uh, he explains this by quoting Shakespeare's Hamlet. He says, action anxiety is that which, quote, makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of, uh, which, of course, is what, you know, Hamlet talks about, the idea of, of going on through pain rather than, like, ending it and going on to see what undiscovered country lies beyond the grave. Yeah. 
Um, but it, it's a fear of acting on your actual preferences, an environment that makes pursuing the path that you don't want seem like the less scary option than asking for the path that you do want. Well, that's also touched on a little bit in uh, Macbeth, right? Uh, the yeah. idea about having waded so far through the blood that it's better to just go on through to the other side of this this blood lake than to turn back around, even if turning back around is what you really want to do. Yeah, and he and Harvey roots a lot of this actually in appeals to human psychology. He says, you know, some of our greatest fears are expressed as negative fantasies about fear about fears of separation and ostracization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like terrifying to be the one to step out and say, I'm going to challenge the the momentum of this group that, you know, that like whether it's e- even in simple things like going out to a movie, like you're going out to a movie with friends. I mean, maybe you're comfortable enough with the friends to say, no, actually, I don't want to do this. But like a lot of times, especially if you don't know people as well, you'd rather just not be thought of as the jerk who, who said, let's not do it. Yeah, because you're engaging and you're, you're kind of engaging in this group thing, you know, even yeah. if it's something as simple as say like, a group of friends getting together to to play Dungeons and Dragons. You know, mm-hmm. you're not you know you're not a, a dirty tricks um, uh, council or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, you're not. You know, all you're doing is just trying to hang out and play a game. But you don't, still don't want to shake the boat if somebody wants to get fried pickles. You know. Right. Um, even if you really don't care for fried pickles all that much. Right. Uh, but maybe the person who suggested it doesn't either, and they're just saying right. it because they thought somebody else did. Yeah. And so you reach a point where every week you order fried pickles, even though no. Nobody's really crazy about fried pickles, and everybody (laughs) probably feels a little bad about eating them every week. Yeah. Uh, So in the end, Harvey comes up with a couple of recommendations for diagnosing and dealing with – with Abilene paradoxes in a business context, uh, unfortunately, there's no special magic trick. Basically, he says he thinks the best way to deal with it is uh, for an authority figure who detects a situation like this to call a meeting, frankly articulate their doubts in a group setting, and then ask others to share their honest thoughts. If you're an authority figure, you have you know it's safer for you to go out on a limb and question the direction that you're going in. Well, right. I mean, that's that's why they make the big bucks, right? They right. Sh- this is the this is the moment when they can really earn that higher pay ra- that higher pay grade right right be the authority figure that comes in and, and shuts down uh, you know things that nobody really wants to do or that there's no real advantage to doing from a business standpoint yeah now in the political context I think the the Kang and Kodo situation kind of highlights a, a satirical absurd version of this with the idea that uh, you know, obviously humans would all recognize like, OK, we we are all in agreement. We're in agreement. We don't want either Kang or Kodos. Mm-hmm. That's the position shared by everybody voting at this point. But they're able to cause this action anxiety about organizing any kind of third option. The idea of throwing your vote away on any kind of third party candidate when you've got Kang and Kodos there is going out on a limb. You fear ostracization. You fear being separated. You fear being different. And so eventually they just kind of decide, well, which one will I take, Kang or Kodos? And (laughs) despite everybody agreeing that neither option is wanted – but it keeps everybody together. I mean, yeah. humanity is united at the end, 
in their enslavement to these uh, these terrible alien overlords. <laughs> no, they're not. They're still bickering. Don't blame me. Well, I voted for Kodos. <laughs> I think that's, that's the true. genius of it. Is there? I mean, they're that. essentially unified, but they still have the mindset of division. Uh-huh. Uh Yeah, and so I think the way around that, of course, would be that it requires some kind of. Uh, risk of leadership for somebody to say, hey, wait a minute, can we try to organize some way to get around this two, uh, you know, the two options we've got here that we all agree we don't want? That sounds like a really wicked problem to deal with, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the point the writers are making there is that we are just not good at organizing that kind of agreement effectively. Yeah. Now, what do we do about the fact that we're often not good at managing agreement and this leads to repeated absurdities like the Kang and like the election of Kang? Um, well, he actually uh, – Harvey ends his paper with a strangely philosophical note for an organizational dynamics paper. Uh, he says that, you know, sometimes these situations simply cannot be resolved. And he calls to mind the myth of Sisyphus, the character from Greek mythology who was condemned to forever repeat the task of pushing a boulder up a hill only for it to fall back down to the bottom again, making a mockery of his efforts as not only painful but pointless. Uh, and in Albert Camus' version of the myth, he adds a detail that sometimes in his endless loop of absurd toil, Sisyphus would get near the top of the hill – but then release the boulder of his own accord, letting it roll back down to the bottom on purpose. And Harvey says in this act, he could transcend the absurdity of his struggle. Uh, and I think this is sort of the bullseye of existential philosophy, right? Life is absurd and you transcend that absurdity by recognizing your radical freedom and acting authentically, which means basically without lying to yourself about the absurdity of life. Mm. Like this is when you write in a third candidate. No, I think actually in this case it might be more like voting for Kang or not voting or something while, hmm. while recognizing the absurdity and unwinnableness of the scenario. Hmm. OK. So I don't know if that's the best thing to do in the uh, alien election. I would say actually try to organize the third party. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the uh, th th this whole discussion actually does bring us back to real questions about the field of astropolitics. Uh, I mean, this is something I think we could dis uh, devote whole episodes to in the future. There, there's actually a field of study and you know, people have written about like what would happen if aliens arrived on Earth? Like oh, what yeah. would be the political response to that? How would different uh, world economic and military powers behave? Uh, you know, would we all band together? Would we put aside our differences and our d self-interest and say we need to organize and act together as Earth? Or would aliens be able to exploit our petty grievances? and our differences and turn us against one another. And I think, I, unfortunately, I think there are some pretty good signs pointing toward the latter. Yeah, I mean, our only model for intelligent life in the cosmos is, is our model of intelligent life, yeah. of, a, of a technologically advanced civilization. And when we look at the way that, uh, you know, certainly at the way you know, civilizations have interacted with each other, mm -hmm. uh, certainly look at the way that, uh, you know, Western uh, colonization uh, how that transpired, we see time and time again, basically the, the Kang and Kodos model, manipulate their their leaders and their leadership, corrupt their, uh, their, their rule, mm -hmm. work one side against the other, uh, ultimately overpower and bring enslavement and death. I mean, that's, that is the, the story of, uh, of human history, sadly. And so when we look to the stars, you know, there are plenty of people who have said, well, that's basically what we can expect based on our models, based on our knowledge of our, our self-knowledge of how we work. Mm. That is what we can expect from a superior technological force. Like 
we want to imagine the Independence Day scenario where we all come together and join forces, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be overly optimistic. Yeah. I mean, you know, unless we look to our optimism in the sixth finger, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of people have. I mean, a, a lot of certainly the, the various um, – new age religions that have popped up around the idea of aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, they look to aliens as a possibly we're all, we're all mess, messed up in this world and we are, you know, we, we have con- just committed crime after crime and we're shackled to the, the terror of history. Maybe something will come down from above that has evolved beyond this state and that can guide us, that can help us find this new, uh, you know, shape of being. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's the case. But again, if we're looking at our own example of intelligent life, uh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I, I wouldn't put hope in aliens being being a good influence on us. I wouldn't put hope in us biologically evolving beyond our, our petty grievances and all that. I think the hope lies in culture, unfortunately. Yeah. And thus it is up to people like writers and political leaders and th- those kinds of figures to help shape human culture in a way that, that allows us to, to act collectively in our own best interest. I know that's not the easiest thing to put hope in, but I, I think that might be the only hope personally yeah i mean well that's 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 the hard answer that's the difficult answer but it's that's that's the one that requires us to work that's the one that requires us to do uh the heavy lifting here yeah we got to fix our own problems mostly using words yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right i'm sure we'll we'll come back to this topic in the future oh yeah oh i definitely i think we could do some stuff on astropolitics absolutely yeah yeah I, i i would be down for that absolutely uh, but there you have it. This is going to be our third installment of uh, the anthology of horror. Uh, Kang and Kodos willing, we will return next October with at least one, uh, at least a, a volume four, if not a volume four and five. Mm-hmm. And of course, ironically, that'll be uh, pretty much just uh, you know right before the uh, the, the peak uh, moment of American politics heading into the next uh, presidential election. Oh, uh, probably won't do politics one then. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find them. You can also find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But uh, again, this was our Anthology of Horror Volume 3. Volume 2 came out Tuesday, and we reran Volume 1 over the weekend. Also, if you want to check out our other show, Invention, you can find that at InventionPod.com, and that's available everywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, oh, and also the, the fiction podcast, The Second Oil Age, uh, launched as well, the first three episodes with that or live wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, congratulations, man. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, so that's it for this episode. Uh, certainly, we have not seen all of the horror anthology episodes out there. Uh, we are not familiar with all the shows. So from now until next October, if you have specific episodes of various anthology shows you would like us to consider for next time, let us know. If there are just whole shows, whole buckets of content that we're not aware of, uh, please enlighten us. Uh, one of the cool places you can find us for that uh, is uh, our, our Facebook discussion group. It is the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Uh, go check that out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. No, wait, Death Nicholas Johnson. That's right. If uh, you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Yes. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank <laughs> you.